started in the book of Acts a little while ago. We finished up with the disciples, and then we got into the book of Acts, talking about the early church. We're going to take that up through chapter 9. We have talked about Acts chapter 1, where Jesus, after the resurrection, leaves and goes back into heaven. We get to Acts chapter 2. They're there for Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit comes, and there's this incredible response of the people where we see 2,000 or 3,000 people saved and, and even baptized. Uh, we get to chapter 4, and Peter and uh, John uh, heal a man. And after they heal a man, everybody kind of gathers around because they want to learn more, and so Peter and John start preaching on the steps of the, uh, of the uh, synagogue there, and the temple court probably, and, and, and all of a sudden uh, the people are getting excited and, and God is at work and there's this incredible thing taking place. Well, the religious leaders of the day didn't like what was going on, so they basically, while they were speaking, went up and hauled Peter and John off. Put them in jail overnight, the next day they had a trial thing for them and they tried to talk to them about all of the things that were happening. And they told them, they said, look, you can't do this anymore. No more preaching. No more talking about Jesus. And the, we taught, where we left it off is where the disciple, where Peter and John, they couldn't do anything because they hadn't broken any laws. So Peter, they let him go and just told him not to do it. And Peter and John look at him and said, well, you decide what you think we're going to do. We're going to listen to you or God. And, and so they go back. They meet with the church. And we, last we left it off, the church... And at this point, remember, it's not called the church yet. These were just people who had followed Jesus. They're actually what is known as people of the way. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so um, they were known as people of the way at that point. They were just these people who followed the teachings of Jesus. And so this morning when we pick up the story, we're, we're going to find that uh, this story causes a lot of problems because it seems that it is incredibly, incredibly harsh in the way God does what God does. And so we're going to have to wrestle with that a little bit, but there's a lot of great lessons for it um, as we go. So with that in mind, we're going to end, we're going to go to the last part of chapter 4. We're going to be introduced to a guy by the name of Barnabas. Uh, Barnabas becomes a big deal in the church, and we'll talk about that in a second, but uh, and then we're going to talk about two other people, one called with the name of Ananias and one by the name of Sapphira, who were a married couple, and we'll talk about them. So let's start with Barnabas first of all. Here's how we're introduced at the end of the book of Acts. And Joseph, who was also surnamed Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, brought it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, if you remember... We talked about this thing called the early church. In the early church, they were taking care of one another, and they were meeting one another's needs, and they were, they were, they were just loving, and, and, and there was an incredible unity, an incredible excitement about it. This guy's name, Barnabas, comes up. Now, Barnabas, it gives us a lot of insight here, but let me give you a fast forward. He's going to become a big player in the book of Acts. In fact, the only name that is probably a bigger player in the book of Acts is Paul. But if you'll, as you go through the book of Acts, here's what you're going to find out about this guy. When Paul gets saved, the church doesn't want anything to do with him because they think he's like a, a secret agent and he just wants to kill more Christians. It is Barnabas who's going to come up and argue for why 
Paul should be allowed to be a part of the church. When Paul takes his first missionary journey, Barnabas is the guy that goes with him. In fact, their first stop is Cyprus, where Barnabas was from. Later, there's going to be a problem in the church where there's this issue of do we take in Gentiles and, 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 and all this game. Barnabas is going to be the guy who's going to argue for, yes, let the Gentiles come in and be a part of this thing. At one point, as they get, what happens on their first missionary journey is they take another guy by the name of John Mark. And John Mark is with them on that. And John Mark, halfway through the journey, bails on him. And he goes, I'm out. On the second missionary journey, John Mark says, hey, I want to go on this one. And Paul says, ain't no way. You had one shot, you blew it, we're done. And there becomes a, a tension argument about should we take John Mark. Barnabas is the guy who solves it. Barnabas steps in and he says, I'll tell you what, Paul, let's do this. I'll take Barnabas and I'll go and we'll go minister in this way. And you, you go ahead and you take um, 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 Silas. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> Silas, you take Silas and you guys go that way. And that's what they do. And so he goes out and does his thing, and they go out and do their thing, and it's interesting when you get to the book of Timothy. One of the things Paul says is he goes, okay, you know what? Um, uh, John Mark's all right. He's, he's been a big help. Uh, that's, that was Paul's kind way of saying, Barnabas, you were right and I was wrong, but Paul's temperament really didn't allow that to happen much. So anyway, um, so that's kind of the idea. So this guy becomes a big player, and here's what happens. This guy is part of the early church, and here's what he says. He goes, you know what? Um, I got some land. Uh, I think, I personally think the idea is, you know what? I've got some land. I'm following Jesus here and I'm following this group here. So you know what? I'm not going to need land. I'm just going to sell it and give it away. And, and the money and the, and the church, again, it's not called the church then the people of the way, the group, the disciples that are leading, they can have it and do with it what they think, what they want. So it's an incredibly gracious gesture. But again, I think that's, because this is the first introduction to, to Barnabas, that's what Barnabas was like anyway. He was always stepping in to help people. Whether it was Paul, whether it was John Mark, whoever it was, that was just his nature. So he steps up, and he says, you know what, I'm going to do this, and he takes the money, and he lays it at the apostles' feet and says, okay, guys, here you go, do with it whatever you want. So we have that story of that introduction to, to Barnabas, and so it's, it's an incredible thing for the church. Because, again, they were able to help people. Now, some people go, see, that's what you should do. You should like sell everything and give it to the church. No, that is not what this passage teaches, okay? Because um, you're going to see it in a minute. Paul says, look, you know what? You didn't have to do any of that. Um, but Barnabas, because of who he was and the way he was, that's just what he did. Now, we now are introduced to another couple. By the name of Anna, chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. There's some unique things here. First of all, it's interesting that they are married, but they are not dealt with as a married couple. They are dealt with individually, and that's huge. What Ananias and Sapphira do, I'm going to give you the short story and then we're going to read it, is they, for whatever reason, decide they're going to do the same thing Barnabas did. But they're not going to give it all. They're going to tell everybody they're giving it all. They're going to keep back a little bit of it or a lot of it. They're going to keep back some of it. 
And God deals really, really seriously with this. And, we, and that's why the struggle. So uh, Acts chapter 5, let me read to you what happened. Uh, Acts chapter 5 says, But a certain man named Annas, or Ananias, and Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back. Now, it's interesting. Notice what it says. He kept back. They're a couple, though, right? But we have this singular idea. He kept back part of the proceeds. His wife also being aware of it. So it's not like she was in the dark on this deal. And brought a certain part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it sold, was it not in your own control? You have conceived this thing in your heart. You have not lied to men, but to God. Now, I want to stop here because, uh, okay, the pastor in me has to do this. So just hang on for a second. I want to take a rabbit trail, okay, because I think this is really cool from a theology perspective. Some of you are going to like this, and some of you aren't, but that's not going to get it. But follow me. Notice what he says. He says, um, Satan has filled your heart to lie to the, what is the word? Holy Spirit. Now, here's the thing. You don't lie to an entity. You don't lie to a thing. You know, I don't come in and say, okay, folks, i got to confess to you. Yesterday, I lied to my motorcycle. You're going, you know, if you talk to your motorcycle, you have a lot more serious problems than lying. Um, you know, I mean, really, you know, because why? You don't lie to a thing. You don't lie to an entity. You lie to a person. You get that? The Holy Spirit is a person. And you see that here in the verse. Now, notice what he goes on to say in verse 4, though, or at the end here. You have not lied to men. Now, they lied to Peter and the leaders, and the church. They said, we've sold all of this and given all of this. But notice what he says. You have not lied to men, but to God. Get that? Now, make the connection here. Go Add it up. In verse 3, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. In verse 4, you've lied to God. So therefore... God and the Holy Spirit are, see that? Okay, now that was fun. All right, okay, go back to the story. Here we go. You've not lied to men, but you have lied to God. Now, wait a minute. Here's the reality. They lied to the the leaders. They lied to the church. But Peter says, no, you lied to God. And we're going to see why that's important at the very end when we apply all this. Notice what he goes on to say in the next verse, verse 5. Then Annas, Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. <laughs> you lied to God. Uh, boom, gone. Now, there had to be something unique about this. Because the people in the church realized this was not normal. And it says, and the young men arose, wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now, what you're going to find in the next verse is they talk to his wife three hours later and she doesn't even know what's happened. Now listen, in in this time, they buried people quickly, not that quickly. The only time you buried somebody that quickly was the idea was 
We want this guy as far away from us as we can, as quickly as we can, because he did something that God took his life for, and we, are out of, we want him out of here. And literally, they come, they wrap the body, and, it, and it's gone. Peter here deals with Ananias first. And look at the next verse going on. The rest of the story says, uh, verse 7, Now, it was about three hours later. His wife came in. They didn't even inform her what had happened, not knowing what had happened. So she comes strolling into town, or she comes strolling up to the disciples, or the apostles, or Peter, and notice what he says. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Uh, Sidelight, those of you who are parents and grandparents, here's something that's interesting. Peter asked her a question. He doesn't tell her what she's done. When he, confronts, when he confronts Ananias, he says, this is what you did. You lied to the Holy Spirit. You lied to God. Here he gives her an out. And he says, let me ask something. How much did you guys sell the land for? She basically tells him the whole price and lies. Yes. Did you sell it for that? Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of God? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Literally, he now stands there and looks at her and says, and you know what? Now you're going to face the same fate your husband faced. You had your shot. Notice what it goes on to say. Verse 10, uh, the next one. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. The irony of this is so incredible, and here's why. Where did they put the money that they gave? At the feet. Where does she fall down dead? At the feet. The thing that they valued the most, the money, was the thing that they lost. And the money has no value now that they're both gone. And notice what happened. And the young man came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. And then, notice this, because this becomes really important. So great fear came upon all the church. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if, if I said, okay, next week, folks, here's what you need to understand. If you lie to God, he will take your life. Boom, it's over. Now, I'd, let me just tell you what. I ain't going to be here preaching. Okay? No? And I doubt very few of us would be. Fortunately, God doesn't deal like that today, and we're going to talk about why we, God did what he did. But great fear came upon all the, what's that word? What's the next word? Church. Are you ready for this? That's the first time the word church has been used in the New Testament. I'm talking about after, after the resurrection. Why? The whole, this whole new thing, people of the way, people of the, all of a sudden now they're called a church. In connection with this story. And upon all those who heard these things, all of a sudden now people are thinking really seriously about what they're doing and why they're doing it. Okay? So let me talk about a couple of problems, and then let me talk about some application, and, and you're going, okay, how am I going to use this this week, this way? One of the questions here is, why does God deal so harshly with this? I mean, if, I were to, if we were to be honest this morning, it doesn't seem like that big a deal, does it? You know? 
okay, you know what, I want you to know, you know, I sold my car, and I sold it for $10,000, and I gave the church a nine, I gave the church all of it. To lose my life over that? Doesn't seem like that big a deal. Um, because, again, you know, so, so why so harshly? I mean, why do two people lose their lives over a deal like this? Um, let me tell you, there's all kinds of theories, there's all kinds of beliefs. Let, let me tell you how I put this in the big picture of things. You have to understand what's happening here. You see, in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit has come. In Acts chapter 3, God is at work and people are, are, are becoming part of this movement called People of the Way. In Acts chapter 4, the, their persecution comes from without and they're trying to throw these guys in prison and get them to stop teaching this. But in Acts chapter 5, for the first time, the temptation and Satan's influence is now from within. And God has taken this newborn thing called the church, and, he's, and, and, and he's, 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 he's dealing with it, and he's developing it, and he's bringing it along, and it's growing, and it's doing all these kinds of incredible things. And the key to the whole thing is the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is at work, and people are unified, and people are on the same page, and people are, are, are taking care of one another, and it's about one another. And then all of a sudden, somebody comes in and goes, you know what, I'm going to make this about me. And Jesus, who has spent three years on this earth preaching, and one of the things he condemns the most is hypocrisy. He would go over and over to the Jewish people and go, look, you know, the Jewish leaders in particular, you say this and then you do this. Your heart is so far from God. Why are you acting like this? And so Jesus, who was so adamant about don't be a hypocrite, now for the first time in this new little thing called the church, there is hypocrisy that is front and center. God sends a very strong message to say, you know what? I don't want this as a part of my church. And guess why God deals with it the way he deals with it? Because he realized for the first time that something from within like that could turn it into the very thing that he had come to save people and deliver people from. And the last thing he wanted is for this early new church to take off and head down that direction. The last thing he wanted is somebody who was lying to everybody else to get away with it and not be exposed. The last thing that he wanted was to encourage people to be two-faced. And so God said, and so when this happens, these people are standing back going, uh, we are not going to lie to one another. We're going to be transparent and honest with one another. We're not going to be phony. We're not going to be. And look, some of you have been in churches where you know of the hypocrisy that has existed and the reality of it is it's turned you off from church. Because you're like, I don't want to be a part of that kind of phoniness. In the beginning, God had the same attitude. God still has the same attitude. He just doesn't take people's lives for it now. But God has the same attitude of, I don't want that to exist in my, in my church. In this thing that I've created, this thing that I've put together. So let's talk about a couple of lessons that I think will help us this week. First lesson. One of the things this passage teaches is individual responsibility. What's incredibly unique about this passage is that God deals with Ananias and God deals with Sapphira. 
That is so counter to this culture. Because the culture of the day said the woman was supposed to do whatever the guy said. That was the culture of that time. The culture of that time was a woman was always um, way underneath, and basically in this culture, a woman was property. Christianity comes in and takes the role of a woman and elevates it to an equal status. And that is, is so, again, different roles, no problem with that, but equal. So when Peter now, with this new group of the church, comes in and has to confront them, he doesn't look at him and just deal with him. He looks at her and deals with her. Ananias is responsible for his part of it. Sapphira is responsible for her part of it. Why? Because you need to understand this. The Bible teaches individual responsibility. So let me say this because I think we forget this in our culture. You are responsible for you. And there is nobody else to blame but you. And we're in a culture which goes, well, you know, my parents. No, no, no. You you don't get the choice to blame your parents for where you are. Did they influence it? Yeah. Could it have been better? Yeah. Could it have been worse? Yeah. You are where you are because of the choices you make. And you will stand before God accountable for you, no one else. I'm not accountable for the choices my kids make. I'm not accountable for the choices my wife makes. I'm not accountable for the choices you make. I'm accountable for the choices I make. And I stand before God. And I, okay, so let me go down this road because I know some of you, I know some of you have been around Christianity a lot. Well, what about in the Old Testament where it says, the, sin, the sins of the father are visited upon the third and the fourth generation? That does not mean that the, the father, that, that I pay for the sins of my father or grandfather or great grandfather. That's not what that passage means. What that passage means is, if you don't break the cycle, it'll just repeat. And Arch, and, and my, if my dad were alive, he would tell you this. My dad had a horrible temper. You know why? You know where my dad learned his horrible temper? From his grandfather. My grandfather, when my dad, my grandfather was an iron worker. He built railroad gate, the big railroad crossing gates and worked on doing those, building that, was a welder. My grandfather told my dad at 16, he said, son, the day that you think that you can do what you want in this house, he said, we'll go out in the backyard. And he said, last man standing gets to call the shots in this house. Let me tell you something. I never met my grandfather. He passed away before I was here. But you know what? My grandfather would have laid him out. Now, now, my dad learned that kind of temper. But I'll never forget when I was 16, 17 years old, my dad said, look, God's convicted me of this, and I'm going to change it. And I watched my dad change his temper. And so I had to come along and realize, you know what? I need to control my temper as well. It's my choice. I can't blame my grandfather, my great-grandfather, whatever else. It's my responsibility. And I, I say that to say this because people go, you know, well, you know, uh, I'm blaming them. No, 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 you can't blame them. And by the way, let me say this. Some of you parents, you are beating yourselves up and living with the guilt of the choices your kids make. You're not responsible for the choices they make. You're responsible for what you teach them. I taught my children what I thought God wanted me to teach them. They're responsible for what they do with it. They can turn their back on it all. That's not on me. That's their call. Because they are responsible for themselves. And we need to get back to this. 
Because we're in this culture where, you know, well, you know what? You know, my kid's having a hard time in that class because of that teacher. No, your kid's having a hard time in that class because of your kid. Well, wait a minute. What do you mean because of my kid? You know, my, you don't understand. My kid would never. Oh, yeah, I've heard those, that discussion before. Yeah, I was the parent who said, okay, if that happened in the class, it was my kid. You know? But, you know, it's like, well, my kid would never, you know, and that. Let me tell you something. I've known enough teachers in my lifetime to know. I've never met one that gets up in the middle, every morning and goes, you know what? I've got it out for this kid. Sorry, but your kid ain't that important. They just want to get through the day. And, I mean, we have got to understand this because we're in this culture where we have lost this concept of individual responsibility. And one of the things that you can instill in your kids, those of you who have kids, those of you who are grandparents, you need to instill in this idea this is individual responsibility. You're accountable for you. Because I can show you kids who were in great homes and made poor decisions, and I can show you kids that were in horrible homes but made great decisions. By the way, if you, some of you who, let me just talk to parents who run the guilt trip on, you know, I wish my kids would have done. Can I talk to you for a second? Do you understand that God was the first brokenhearted parent? Do you understand that God put Adam and Eve in a garden and did everything right? Do you understand that God could not have done anything more perfect for Adam and Eve? And then what did Adam and Eve do? They looked at all God had created for them and said, you know what? It's not enough. I'm going to go choose this. So you're in great company. Believe me, God understands, okay? And it's not about you create, you go, well, I want to provide the best for my kid. Every parent wants to provide the best. Oh, I would do so much different. All of us would do it different. That's when we get the chance at grandparenting, and then we mess that all up because we give them all the things we wouldn't have given our kids. And, and you know, it's like, you know, well, you know, you've never had to tell your granddaughter no. Really? Because she'll tell you, and when Grandpa says no, it's all pouty face and blah, 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 and it don't melt this cold stone heart. Because I just look at her and go, tough life, little girl. You'll get over it. Um, there's an element of truth in that. See, this is where if you lie to God, you don't get struck dead right now. Um, no, um. Look, individual responsibility, folks. Individual responsibility. Here's, here's a second lesson in this. And we don't like to talk about this, but we need to talk about it because that's what the passage talked about. There's a link between how you view your stuff, your materials, things, your money, all those kinds of things, and your relationship to God. There's a link. Okay? Uh, Christ said, you can't... It, Christ over and over again used all kinds of connections to that. Now, I'm not saying that because we need money. We're doing fine. Okay? We're doing fine. This isn't about what we need. And if you think, oh, this is about the church trying to get money, then just give it somewhere else. I don't care. But, but, but what I want you to understand is we, we, have to get, we have to understand. In the early church, money was a way and possessions and stuff was a way to further the ministry and the cause of reaching more people for God. That's all it was. It was a way to take care of people. It was about people. It wasn't about things. It wasn't about what you own. It wasn't about how much money you had. It was about those are resources to help other people. It was about people. And that's what, you've got, that's what we've got to understand. There is a link 
between, and Jesus warns. He says, be really careful about how you look at, at, at money and material things. You know, he said, look, the material stuff rusts. Look, I, I love my motorcycle. I love my little MG thing. But here's the bottom line. 30, 40 years from now, it's going to be in a junkyard somewhere. Because it rusts. Um, the things that I invest my life in that have eternal value, they don't. Um, Jesus over and over again. Remember the story of the rich young girl? He goes away from Jesus. Why? Because he had much and he wouldn't let go of any. Remember the story of the rich young, the, the rich guy who said, you know what? I'm not going to include God in my future plans. I'm just going to keep building bigger and bigger and bigger barns. And he dies that night with all of his stuff. Remember the story of Judas? Who for th- that's a crazy story. For 30 pieces of silver, he betrays Jesus. Then he realizes what he's done. He goes back to give the money back to the people that gave it to him. You know what they say? We don't want that money. That's blood money. That's bad money now. Well, it's the money you gave me to do this. They didn't want anything to do with it. And in essence, of fire. Like, like Peter said, when, when it was yours, you could have done anything you wanted with it. Nobody cared. But the second you came to a group of God's people and said you gave it all when you didn't, when you tried to make yourself look better in front of all of them instead of being honest with them, that's serious business. That's serious business. And I want to challenge you because we're in a culture where stuff and money and things like that can become our focus and they can become our security. And the second your security becomes in something that can rust or something that can be stolen or something that can be taken away is the day that you have set yourself up for a very, very difficult future. And those of you who are older, you've lived long enough to watch some of this stuff happen. And you've lived long enough to watch and realize what's really, really valuable. Like I say, I've never been, in a, I've never been around somebody in a nursing home who said, you know what, could you please bring all of my tractors and line them up outside my window so I can look at them every day? I can't tell you the number of people who said, I wish so-and-so would stop by, or I wish I could see so-and-such, or wish somebody bring grandkids by, or why? You see, at the end of our life, we tend to, we tend to willow, willow it up, window, or whatever. We, we tend to, it comes all the way down to what's really important. You know as well as I do. We spend a lot of time on stuff that really doesn't matter. And 90% of the stuff you're, work, you're worried about this morning has no eternal intrinsic value. And so you're so worried about getting in more hours at work or getting that next promotion or something like that that you're missing out on time with your spouse or your kids or your grandkids or your neighbors or your friends or your relatives. Let's make sure that it's about people instead of stuff. You know, that's one of the things that I love about here. I love that. Um, We're doing stuff when we're out there building a building, but you know what? We're building relationships, and that's the most important thing. And somebody, even this morning, they said, hey, I was talking to someone, and they were up here this week working, and they go, I was talking to so-and-so. They lived just down the road from me, and I didn't even know it. Exactly. It's about getting to know one another. It's about building those relationships. It's about people. And the early church was about people, and the stuff was just a way to help each other. 
You know, and I love that concept of it. And, and I want to get back to that idea of, look, we've got to be about, and, and I think we are. I just, you know me, I'm like you. I, I always want more, you know. I want us to get closer. And I want us to get, build more relationships. I want us to get more involved with one another. Because in the end, in the end, trust me, you're going to find out that's what's the most valuable thing you have. The last thing is this. God is serious about his church. I think it's interesting in this story that they lied to people. But God says, Peter said, you lied to God. Because you see, and this got to be careful here, but I want you to make sure you guys really understand this. God's church is God's church. So if you want to fight it, you're not fighting. They weren't fighting. They weren't lying to Peter. They weren't lying to the apostle. They weren't lying to the church. They were lying to God because God said, this is my deal right here. And I take this seriously. And, and, and I want to challenge you because it's easy sometimes to lose sight of that. I'm not saying the leadership is God. But I'm saying if the leadership in a church is following and trying to follow what God wants, if it's God's church, there's no problem disagreeing with what's going on. The problem is when you make it an agenda. The problem is when you get this attitude of, you know, well, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going I'm to leave and take as many people with me as I can. Oh, that's so dangerous. Because if that's God's place, you know, those of you who, you know, if you listen to me, you will not hear me attack another ministry. You know why? Because I take this idea very seriously. That church may do things differently, and I may disagree with the way they do things, and I may not like the way they do things, but if that's God's church, I ain't going to be the guy to say something bad about it. I want to be really careful here. You know, I'm not saying that, you know, when we say, hey, we're going to go do this, you go, yay, yeah, we're in no matter what. I'm not talking about blindly following anybody. But I'm talking about the idea of the understanding that, you know what, you need to be really, really careful about talking critically or negatively or, 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 or something else about another ministry. Because if it's God's, he does take this stuff seriously. And I have been in ministry long enough to see that. I've been in ministry to watch who people have gone up against. And again, I've had ministries that I've left because I haven't agreed with them. But I've never burned a bridge where I couldn't go back. I've never tried to grab a group of people to go with me. Why? Because it was something that God laid upon my heart, something that need that I had in my life, and I needed to go elsewhere. I needed to go do something else, and that was okay. Be really careful here. Because I believe God's at work here. But I don't believe this church is for everybody. So I don't have a problem if somebody goes, you know what, we're going to go so-and-so. In fact, I've had people come to me and go, you know what, we really want this. And I'm like, okay, I'll help you find a church. I have no problem with that. I'm not in competition with anybody. Our goal here is to minister to people who come here, and we want to minister to the best we can with the abilities and resources we have. And if we can do that for you and your family, awesome. And if we can't, we're okay with that too. We'll, well, our goal is to minister to you. If that means helping you find a better fit, we will help you find a better fit. That's okay. But on the same token, be careful because I, I, I've watched over the history. I've watched people who have left a ministry and have 
griped and complained and said things about it. And then what's happened is they burned that bridge and then they want to come back. But they have so much apologizing to do, they don't want to humble themselves enough to be able to do that. You don't want to be in that boat, you know. And, and I just want to challenge you here because one of the things that this teaches is if it's God's church, you better be careful, you know. Now, again, I'm not talking about disagreeing. Come up here on a Tuesday and Friday. You will hear disagreements all afternoon, okay? There's nothing wrong with that. I think you ought to do it that way. I think you ought to do it that way. I think you ought to do it this way. You know how we solve it? Are you going to do it? No. Okay. Then you don't get to do it that way. Um, that's how we solve it. I get that. Not talking about that. Talk about be careful here. Because God takes his church seriously. And by the way, along those lines, I hear people say, well, you know, I don't want to go to church because it's full of hypocrite. Well, okay, let's understand that. The church that we're talking about in Acts 5 here is like four months old, and they already got hypocrisy there, okay? They already got a hypocrite, all right? That's always going to exist. It's not the, I don't go to church because of hypocrites or no hypocrites anyway. I go to church because I want to fellowship with God and worship God. So, and if you really, really hate hypocrites, and you really, really, really don't want to be associated with hypocrites, here's a, here's a suggestion to you. Go get in a church and don't be a hypocrite. And you will be a shining light to those that are hypocrites. See how easy that is? You know, see how simple that is? But we have people who won't come here because, oh, I know so-and-so and they're a hypocrite. Well, where are you going? Oh, I don't go anywhere. Cop out. You know, that's not the reason. You don't go because of that person. That's just your cop out. It's just your way out of it. You know? And I, and I just want to challenge you because my goal, look, I'll be honest, just like all of us here, there are times that I, I'm hypocritical. Live in my house. Can you imagine my world? Can you imagine my world? I got to stand over here and preach to you guys and tell you guys what to do and what the Bible says to do, and then I got to go home to her. And I've done this for 30 years. You don't think that I'm really conscious of what I'm saying up here because I know I might be able to fool everybody in here, but there is one person who's sitting in here who knows. You know? And those of you who vacation with me, you're like, yeah, I know you too. All right. Okay. Look, I'm, not, I, I'm just talking about look, folks. Let's be real about it. And let's be real about it. And along those lines on the hypocrisy thing, okay, I'm going to take my little rabbit trail and then I'm done. I want a church where when I come up to somebody and I say, how you're doing, that they don't look at me and go, oh, everything's great. If everything's great, that's what I want you to say. And if it's like, you know what, this has been a horrible, terrible, ugly week. Thank you for your honesty. Now I know how to pray for you this week. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to put you in some category of, oh, you know what? They're really struggling. I need to go. No, I just don't know how to pray for you that week. And I love that we have some of those kinds of relationships here where people are real. 
And they said, hey, how you doing? They're like, you do not want to ask. It is. It went from ugly to uglier. Awesome. I know how to pray for you this week. Why? Because I want a group of people who are honest with each other and who genuinely care, and we can pray for one another, and we can get involved in one another. And we're not phony in this whole plastic church thing that exists in so many places. So I just want to encourage you, all right? Uh, I want to encourage you as you go throughout this week. Let's understand a couple of things. You're individually responsible for you. You are accountable to God for you and the choices that you make. Let's remember as we go throughout the week that not only that, but this is God's church, so be careful. Be careful. And let's take a good hard look at how we view our stuff. Because believe it or not, where your treasure is, that's where your heart goes. It does affect your spiritual life and your spiritual direction. So I close with this. Be careful. The material things are not the focus of your life. We're responsible for our action, our heart before God and others. God takes his church seriously. He abhors hypocrisy. And he will do whatever he needs to do to protect his church. Let's pray. Lord, use us. <coughs> Lord, we all struggle. There's not a person here who's got it all together. But Lord, we're in this together. So Lord, may this be a place where people find freedom to be themselves. May it be a place, Lord, where we genuinely care more about one another than the stuff that we have or own or possess. May it be a place, Lord, where it's about people, where the Holy Spirit is allowed to freely work in our hearts and lives, and where Satan, Lord, becomes very, very uncomfortable. Lord, will you use us? Lord, there's a, there's a world, there's a community around us that need you. And Lord, we are the possessors of this incredible thing called eternal life. Help us to be willing to live it and to share it with those around us. These things we ask in your name. Amen.